And, and obviously, if, if you've been a part of this church for a while, you know the Bible is something that's very important to us as a church. Um, we don't think that the Bible is just kind of a, a resource to, to, to hang on our shelves. We, the Bible is what we use as, as our source of what we teach from, from up front, um, and not just up front, but in our small groups and, and different classes and the youth ministry and the, the children's ministry. Um, we, we, we have Bible reading plans. We think that the Bible is so important that it's part of our name as a church, Life Bible Fellowship Church. We, we treat the Bible as really important. And if you, it may be that for some of you, the reason you chose to make this church family your home is because of the way that we treated the Bible as very important. And at the same time, let's just acknowledge for a minute, the Bible is a book we have trouble with. And I'm not just saying that why some of you aren't Christians and so you have trouble with the Bible. I'm saying all of us have trouble with the Bible. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, you probably, you still have trouble with the Bible for a number of different reasons. And sometimes we have trouble with the Bible because we just say, well, it's hard to understand. And we, we all wrestle with that. And in fact, the passage we're going to go through later today, I, I think it's the, the toughest one in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, it's not always easy to understand the Bible. And some of us struggle with it, not because we can't understand it, it's because we can understand it and we're not quite sure. We can't understand it and we're troubled by, by the standard that God seems to call us to and, and we don't think we could ever live up to that. Some of us are troubled because there's parts of the Bible that just don't seem very applicable. And so we say, why is this book so important if there's whole sections of it that I can't quite figure out how it relates to my life? Some of us have trouble with the Bible because there's parts of it that, that trouble us in a deeper way where we say, oh, I'm, I'm troubled by God's judgment in this passage or I'm troubled by the reality of hell or, or by certain things that are called sin or some of you might even be on the other end and say, no, I'm troubled by the fact that God forgives people that shouldn't be forgiven. We, we have trouble with the Bible. It's not an easy book for us. And so when we're in this series called Who is Your King, where we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and really what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying, this is what life looks like if people treat me as king. If you live as if Jesus is the king, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is outlining, what life looks like. What we're going to talk about today is how does King Jesus guide us to look at the Bible? And specifically, how does King Jesus fit into the Bible? What's his relationship with the Bible? If we're really going to treat Jesus as the king, then it's going to be important for us to talk about his relationship with the Bible. And when I say his relationship with the Bible, I don't mean just how he fits in as a character, as a part of the Bible, but specifically how he connects with what we would call today the Old Testament. Because when Jesus arrived on the scene, there already was a Bible of sorts, there already were scriptures. How did he look at them? Because how he looked at them is going to guide how we today follow the lead of our king and look at the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. So we're going to go through a passage. It's four verses in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. And in these four verses, it's, it's the clearest passage in the Bible where Jesus talks about his view of the Bible. And specifically, again, at this point, what we would call the Old Testament, but it also applies as a whole. And as we go through these four verses, in each verse, Jesus is going to make some idea, going to give some idea to us about how he views the scriptures and how we can view it if we're going to view it the way that the king does. 
So the first one is going to be in verse 17, and I'm going to put it up here for us as we walk through it. The first thing that Jesus is going to tell us is the way that he views the scriptures and himself is that he has come not as a contrast to the scriptures, but as completion of them. So here's verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And then he says again, I have not come to abolish them. If you ever had, a, if you're a parent, you've had this situation happen. Sometimes I, I hear a ruckus with my boys. I'm going to walk in and I say, what's going on here? And one of them says, it wasn't me. I think, all right, little guilty conscience there. Why are you raging against this? That, that almost seems like how this passage starts with Jesus. He says, don't, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, which was a shorthand way of talking about the Old Testament. So don't, don't say that I came to abolish them. We're like, well, who said that? Where is this coming from? Why does he feel the need to clarify this? And I think the main reason why he feels the need to clarify this is because of what he's about to say. Some of you might know where we're going. The the next several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, starting next week, we're going to go through passages where Jesus six different times says, you have heard it said, and then quotes an Old Testament passage or command, and then he says, but I say to you. You could look at that and say, oh, so what Jesus is saying is you used to have this rule or you used to have this scripture, but I've got a better idea or I've got a different idea. And Jesus says, no, don't misunderstand me. I haven't come to be a contrast to those. I'm not looking at the Old Testament and saying, well, that was a bad idea. Let's move on to something new. He says, I haven't come to abolish that. He says, I've come to fulfill them. Come to fulfill the scriptures. And really, if we're going to understand the rest of this passage, that word fulfill is the main idea. And and you might be tempted on the surface, you might say, oh, well, what he's saying is um, he hasn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. Um, He's come to obey it. He's come to fulfill it. He's come to obey all the commands. Now, Jesus did obey the commands. That's not what he's saying here. That's not what the word fulfill means. What the word fulfill means, it has the idea of making a promise a reality. Now, this is one of those verses where we're on the surface, you might pass by it, but this is one of those verses that shows that it simply doesn't work to believe that Jesus is just a good teacher because he is claiming something audacious here. What Jesus has basically saying here is all of the Old Testament led right up to this moment. All of the commands, all of the prophecies, all of the stories, they all led up to this moment where I was standing right here before you. I am the fulfillment. I am the culmination of all that came before. If Jesus isn't the son of God, where does he get off saying this? It says everything leads to this moment. Imagine, because every four years we, we get to have a presidential inauguration as a country. So imagine there was a presidential inauguration and the president got up and said, uh, all right, I want to let you all know, I have not come to change the presidency or to change the constitution. Most of us would say, well, good. We're glad, we're relieved. And then if he said, I haven't come to change those, I have come to be the final embodiment of them. Every president before you, every constitutional amendment before you, every moment in our country led up to this moment where I was standing before you right now to be the final embodiment of what it means to be a president. We would be troubled. We'd think that is an audacious claim. That's what Jesus is doing right here. 
He's saying it all led up to me and I am now coming as the culmination of everything before. And he's not just saying, well, if you read the Old Testament, there's prophecies about me, because that's true. Because there's a prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, and that happened, and a prophecy about him being born of a virgin, and that happened, and there are different things about his upbringing, and, and the miracles, and the death, and the resurrection. But he's not just saying, there's stuff in the Bible about me. He's saying, the entire Bible is about me. It all leads to this moment where I'm standing before you right now. And, and just, I, I just want to try to illustrate why he is saying this and what he means by this. Because in the Old Testament, there were a lot of practices that the people did. One of the practices was offering sacrifices. Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of some prophecies about sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system because he came as the once and for all final sacrifice. He didn't just add to it. He completed it. In the Old Testament, the people had a priesthood because you can't just have man and God connecting. You need a, a mediator. Jesus came as the final high priest. He fulfilled the priesthood, which is why we don't still have priests today because he is the one and final high priest. Jesus came to fulfill the Sabbath. This whole idea with the Sabbath that, that the people needed a rest and that we were longing for a rest that God would give us. Jesus gave us ultimate rest because we have forgiveness from our sins and we have a connection with God. Jesus came to fulfill all of these things. But it's even better than that. It's not just that he came to fulfill these systems that they had in the Old Testament. It's that he came to fulfill the stories of all of the heroes that came before him. The Jews looked back at Abraham, and Abraham was a great hero of the faith. Jesus came to fulfill the Abraham story. He came as the greater Abraham. Because Abraham left behind the comfort of his country of origin and went out so that future people could be blessed. Jesus left behind the comfort of heaven and came to a foreign place so that he could bless a people that he would call his own. Jesus came as the fulfillment of Moses. He's the greater Moses. Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery into the promised land. And Jesus comes not to set us free from physical slavery, but from the spiritual slavery to sin and death and condemnation. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of Moses. He comes as the fulfillment of David because he's David's descendant and David was the great king who was, who was a sacrificial king for his people. Jesus comes as the greater king. Jesus comes not only as the, the, the greater version of all of these kind of heroes and prominent people in the Old Testament, there's even smaller stories that you can get in on. And one of my favorites is the story of Esther. Jesus is the greater Esther. And if you don't know the Esther story, this happens in Persia when the Israelites are in exile and Esther ends up becoming the queen. And then there's a plot against the Jews and the Jews are about to be annihilated by the Persians. And Esther decides that it's time for her to go and risk her life to mediate for the people. She's going to go see the king and beg for the lives of the Jewish people. But in order to do that, she has to go to the king unsummoned. And if you go to the king unsummoned, you die. And Esther, in the middle of this great book, she says, you know what? I will go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. In essence, Esther chooses death to save the people. And about 600 years later, Jesus showed up, and he chose death to save his people. 
I, I, I swear I could go on for this for the next 20 minutes and we wouldn't even get to the other verses. This is because this is so powerful. Jesus is saying this all leads to me. All of this. this is what Jesus said at the end of his ministry after the resurrection. He got together with his disciples and basically said, you guys should have seen this. The whole Bible is about me. Jesus says, don't think that I came here to say, well, we had the Old Testament and that was our best shot. That, that was, the father and I have talked though and we, had some, we, we realized it was a bad idea. Like now we've talked and now we have some better thoughts. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I haven't come to get rid of that. All of that is about me. All of that led to this moment where I would complete it. But we still have questions about, all right, well, well, but what does this mean? How does this work itself out in our lives? And verses 18 and 19 really help with this. And so we'll go through those kind of quickly together. So, so first in verse 17, he says, all right, I haven't come for a contrast, I've come to complete. Now he says, not some, but all. In other words, he's saying, I don't think that some of the Old Testament is good. I think that it's all good. Verse 18 says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says, I'm not picking and choosing. I'm not looking at the Old Testament and saying, we can't get rid of that because there's good things in there. He's saying, I think the whole thing is good. When he says not, not the smallest jot or, or the line, he's basically saying there's no dot on an I, no cross on a T that I think shouldn't be there. It's all good. It's all beautiful. It's all revealing God's story. It is all pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus isn't looking back at the Old Testament and saying some of it's good. I mean, we don't want to lose the Psalms, right? We all love the Psalms. So, so we need the Psalms. I mean, imagine if this is what we were doing for the Ilchamus people. We were saying, we're going to get them the Bible. Um, so we'll include the Psalms because everybody loves the Psalms, um, except for the ones that are talking about judgment. Maybe we won't include those. Um, but Genesis, we also like Genesis. Genesis has great stories. So we'll include Genesis. Maybe not chapters one and two, because that's kind of weird. Um, and, and, you know, and then we'll have some stories about David because David's really interesting. And, you know, that Esther story sounds okay, but, but Ecclesiastes is just plain weird. So, so we're not sure. We'll, we'll kind of pick some stuff. Some of it's good. A lot of it's good. We'll, we'll even say a lot of it's good. Jesus says, no, 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 all of it. He says, I haven't come to critique what came before. It all points forward to Jesus, which once again means it is not our job to pick and choose what we think is good and what we think is bad. More on that in a minute. But he gets to verse 19. And he says, all right, not only is it not some of the Bible, but all of the Bible, he says, our attitude is not to disregard, but to practice. So here's what he says, starting in verse 19. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is where we got to pause. And some of you might be saying, all right, I, I'm going to need some help here because Jesus seemed to just say that we're doing something deeply wrong if we disregard any of the rules in the Old Testament, anything in the Old Testament. In fact, he says you'll be least in the kingdom, which doesn't, it, it, the, the, we'll be talking about the kingdom all throughout this series um, because it's a tough concept for us to get because when, when you see the words, the kingdom of heaven, a lot of us are tempted to just think heaven. So he's saying you're least in heaven or you're greatest in heaven. Um, the, the kingdom of heaven does not equal heaven. It's, it's not exactly the same idea. The kingdom is, is a term that Jesus uses to talk about the whole idea of the sphere in which God is treated as the king. 
So what Jesus is basically saying is, if you want your status to diminish in the eyes of God, disregard the Bible. If you want your status to raise in the eyes of God, treat the Bible with seriousness. He's showing his own priorities. But again, we're stuck with this question of, wait a second, but don't we disregard some parts of the Bible? Don't we pick and choose? Don't we say some of it should be obeyed and some of it should no longer be obeyed? Well, well, that's what we need to get into right here to understand this. And the big idea that Jesus is saying is not everything in the Bible will have equal application to all people for all times. What he's saying is all of it is good and none of it is to be disregarded. But some of it today is no longer obeyed in the same way. And the reason it's not obeyed in the same way is not because Jesus came and said, this was a bad idea, we'll do something different. It's because Jesus came and said, that is fulfilled. So we no longer offer animal sacrifices today. And it's not because we look back and said, that was kind of a weird practice, we'll stop that. It's because Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. We no longer have a priesthood. And the reason we don't have a priesthood anymore is not because we said, ah, the priesthood is dumb, we shouldn't have ever done that. It's because Jesus fulfilled the priesthood. We don't follow the dietary laws anymore. Some of you are like, thank God, bacon. The, the reason is not because we look back and say, well, we used to think bacon was dirty, but now we think bacon is okay. It, it's because we now look at it and say, well, Jesus, Jesus even declared this in Matthew 15. He declared all foods to be clean. And he reiterated this to Peter in a vision in Acts chapter 10. He said, all food is now clean because it's not what, you, what goes into your body. It's what comes out that shows whether you're clean or unclean. And Jesus came not just to cleanse us on the outside, but to cleanse us on the inside. And the apostles reiterate this to the point that the apostle Paul, a Pharisaical Jew who is observant of the law, says circumcision, not circumcision, doesn't matter. Which was a huge deal that Paul says, if you want to keep the Sabbath, if you don't want to keep the Sabbath, if you want to keep the Passover, don't want to keep the Passover, it's okay. Those things have been fulfilled. Now, now, just to clarify on this, some of you are thinking, all right, well, well, I know how this works. The way that this works is in the Old Testament, um, there were kind of three categories of, of rules. Um, there's, there's the ceremonial rules that kind of surround worship, and Jesus fulfilled those. And there, then there's kind of the, the judicial code, the things that revolved around the fact that Israel was a nation. So they had laws as a nation. We, we as the people of God are no longer a nation in that way. So we can forget about those two. But what we keep is the moral law. So basically what we keep now is the Ten Commandments. The, the, the Ten Commandments now is the rule of life for Christians. And I just want to say, are you sure? There's a command in there we don't keep. You know which one? The Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you right now are like, no, I keep the Sabbath. No, you don't. <laughs> if you're thinking, I keep the Sabbath, I don't work on Sundays. Couple problems. The first problem is Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath, mind's being blown. Yes. <laughs> the Sabbath is the seventh day. It's Saturday. We, we, we worship on Sunday, not because it's the Sabbath, but because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The Sabbath is not Sunday. And even if you say, all right, I'll switch it to Saturday because I don't usually go into the office anyway. All right, so, so I'll observe the Sabbath on Saturday. I won't work on Saturday. Here's the problem. If you go back and read the Old Testament laws about the Sabbath, it wasn't just don't go into the office. It was all kinds of things about how far you could walk and how much you could carry and how much work you could do. And, you know, some of you know, observant Jews today, they don't light a fire, they don't cook anything because that would involve lighting a fire and that would be breaking the law. We, we do not observe the Sabbath and the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. 
Jesus didn't come and say, I'm getting rid of all of it except the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, it has all been fulfilled and now our new law is what the New Testament authors call the law of love. And this is what Jesus talked about in the passage where where they tried to trap him and say, which commandment is the best? And he said, you know which commandment is the best? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Every law hangs on those laws. And that's what Paul then goes on to say in his letters. That's what John says in his letters. That's what Peter Hinn said in his letters. And James as well, they, they all understand this idea to be, well, the law we now live by is the law to love your neighbor as yourself. And so then a lot of things, and even a lot of things in the Ten Commandments, it would just become obvious. Well, of course, I'm not going to commit adultery. I, I couldn't love my wife or love my husband and commit adultery. That, that would never work. I can't murder somebody and, and, then, uh, and then say that I love them. I can't steal from them or bear false witness before them and, and say that I love them. So, so it clears up a lot of things. And it also brings us a higher calling than just technically doing justice by people. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, but don't look at that as a way to look back at the Old Testament and say, well, good, I'm glad we're done with that. He said, all of that led to that moment. All of that is good. All of that is true. All of that is beautiful. All of that is useful. And all of that led to this moment right now. And then what Jesus does in verse 20 is he tells us just what it looks like to truly obey the commandments today. And so finally, in verse 20, he says, not lesser, but greater. In other words, he says, I haven't come to lower the bar. I've come to raise the bar. In verse 20, Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees and the scribes. And I know today, even if you're not very well versed in the Bible, you hear Pharisee and you're like, I know that one. Pharisees are bad guys. Because Jesus clashed with the Pharisees. Pharisees are bad guys. So it doesn't shock us to hear the idea of being more righteous than a Pharisee. Because we think the Pharisees are bad and maybe we already are more righteous than them. You got to understand for the Jewish people hearing this, that was a shocking statement because the Pharisees were, officially speaking, the most righteous people in Israel. These were people who were so observant of the law that they not only tithed, they not only gave 10% over their income, they gave 10% of the herbs that they grew in their gardens. These were the most observant, most righteous people in Israel. And Jesus says, you need a better righteousness than that. And and this, this could mean two things. And I think there's even a little crossover. Some people say what he's doing here is he is previewing the fact that the only way to have a true relationship with God is if we stand not on our own good works, not on our own righteousness, but if we receive the righteousness of Jesus and that's how we stand before God. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1, the idea that we come before God and we don't say, God, I deserve to be here because I've been pretty good, better than most. The idea is that we come before God and we say, the only reason I think that I can stand in your presence is because of the righteousness of Jesus that was given to me as a gift. He's righteous and I'm with him. And it's possible that Jesus means this, but, but I actually think he does. I, I think what he means, even though all, everything that I said is, is true and biblical, um, I think what Jesus is actually saying is life in the kingdom, 
Life when you treat Jesus as the king looks different than the righteousness of the Pharisees because they live a righteousness by the ritual, but you are going to live a righteousness that involves the whole person. You're going to live a righteousness that involves not just the distant obedience, but the heart transformation. That's what Jesus goes on to talk about in the rest of chapter five that we'll get to in the coming weeks. Jesus says, all right, in the Old Testament, you read, don't murder, and still holds true, don't murder. So if you said, hey, I haven't broken that commandment, I haven't murdered, good job. And Jesus says, but I'm raising the bar. It's not just about the outward form of, uh, of murder, it's about the inward form of hatred and malice and anger in your heart. Deal not just with the exterior, deal with the heart. Now he says, you read in the Old Testament, don't commit adultery. And once again, still holds true. Don't do it. But if you said, I haven't broken that command, I haven't committed adultery. Jesus says, how about the lust in your heart? Jesus doesn't, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you don't get this message where Jesus is saying, you used to have really hard laws, but now I've come to help you all relax. Jesus says, the righteousness I'm calling you to is better. It is stronger. It is, it is more. In some ways we could say, well, it's even more burdensome because it leaves me in a place where I can't just sort of choose to do these things. I, I've got to rely on God to do something in my heart because otherwise I might be able to force myself to follow these, these distant commands, but I can't force myself to love people or to get rid of the lust or the anger or the deceit in my heart. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving us these commands to preview that that's the only way we're going to follow them. If you're like, oh, I'm so glad we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. I don't really care about the spiritual stuff, but I care about the moral stuff and I want to learn the morality of Jesus. Jesus is saying, you will fail unless you have the heart transformation. That's what Ezekiel previewed. By the way, when was the last time any of us read Ezekiel? Anybody? All right. Part of the Bible we're not super excited about. Ezekiel 26 starting in verse, uh, I'm sorry, 36, starting in verse 24. It says, for I, and God speaking to the people, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This, this is written about what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is fulfilling. Jesus is saying, I'm here so that you can get a new heart. I'm here so that you can have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. I'm here so that you can have inward transformation so that the righteousness coming from you is better than anything the Pharisees could ever do. Because it's not just that you're following the rules, it's that your hearts are transformed and love is being poured out. And the only way that you get a new heart is through a new birth. The only way that you get the heart that Jesus is talking about is by yielding our hearts to Jesus. And in essence, saying to him, I'm ready for you to be my king. I'm ready for you to be my king because I, I recognize I am broken, I am sinful, I am guilty, I, I deserve judgment, I don't deserve forgiveness, but I'm crying out to you for forgiveness. I'm crying out to you to make me a new man, to make me a new woman, to, to, to bring newness into my life, to make you, me your child. And through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus does. He makes us new. He says, I didn't come to lower the bar. I didn't come so the Christians could be immoral and just wait for heaven. I came so that we would be transformed from the inside out. 
And by the way, as we're hearing this and we're thinking, because some, some of you really do wrestle with this idea of the Old Testament. And you say, all right, I, I like Jesus um, and, and I like what I find out about God from Jesus, but I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. You know who likes the God of the Old Testament? Jesus. Jesus seemed to believe that the God of the Old Testament was his God and Father. He didn't think there was this sharp contrast. He didn't say, well, that, that stuff was kind of subpar and now we've evolved to something new. He said, all of that was good. All of that was true. All of that was beautiful. All of that leads us to where we are right now. As believers, we don't look at the Old Testament and say, we, we don't want that. If we don't want the Old Testament, we don't want Jesus. We say, all of that is good. All of that is true. All of that is beautiful. I'm going to read it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to see what God has to say to me in that. And I'm going to see Jesus more clearly through that. Because Jesus says, it's not just the New Testament that's about him. It's the Old Testament as well. Jesus didn't come to compete with the Bible. Jesus didn't come as a contrast. Jesus came to illuminate all that came before him. I want to tell you a story, and it's not a true story, um, but I think it's still good. And so this is a story. There was a six-year-old orphan um, who found out uh, that she had been adopted by a family. And the family was from a foreign country, um, and she was so relieved because she'd been living in an orphanage her whole life. She was so relieved to hear that she was going to be adopted. She was going to have a mom and a dad, but it was going to be a little while before she was going to get to meet up with them. And so in the meantime, one of the women at the orphanage came to her and said, um, you're going to have to wait a little while to meet your family, but here's what they've done. They've sent you this letter and they've sent you this picture. And she got the little girl over and she said, all right, look at this. That's your mom. That's your dad. And these are their words. And the little girl smiled and she took those. And she looked back up at the woman from the orphanage and she said, that's my mom, that's my dad. And these are their words. And as she waited for the time that, that they were gonna meet up every night, she would read the letter every night, she would look at the, the picture. And before she went to sleep every day, she would say, that's my mom, that's my dad. And these are their words. And then they put her on a train and said, when, when you get to the end of this train, you're going to finally get to meet up with your mom and your dad. You're going to be united with your family. And the entire time that she was on that 10-hour trip on the train, she was gazing at the picture and she was reading the letter over and over again. And every so often she would pause and she would just say, that's my mom, that's my dad. And these are their words. And when she finally got off the train, she recognized them immediately. She knew exactly who they were. And she ran up to them and they ran up to her and they embraced her and they hugged her and they kissed her and they picked her up. And then that little girl looked back down at the picture and looked at the letter and said, that's my mom, that's my dad, and these are their words. And then the mom put her finger under the little girl's chin and, and propped her chin up and said, we're right here. Here we are. Everything you see in the picture, it's true. It's us. Everything you read in the letter, it, it's true. Those are our words. But we are before you right now. You can hear us. You can see us. You can hug us. You can interact with us. We are before you right now and you can know us in reality. What you had in that letter and what you had in that picture was true and beautiful and helpful. But the reality is now here. What we have in the Old Testament is true and beautiful and useful and every bit of it is true about God. But what Jesus is saying is that God wasn't satisfied to have, us, to have the kind of relationship with him where, where we'd be trying to reach at him from a distance. 
He sent Jesus so that we would see God in all of his glory and clarity. When we look at Jesus, we see God as he truly is. We live in a privileged time because we don't simply have the picture and the letter to gaze at. We get to gaze at Jesus face to face and see the reality of who God is. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you um, because you owe us nothing. You certainly don't owe us Jesus. You certainly don't owe us the gift of revealing yourself to us. That, that is a, a profound gift that you've given us. Um, we, we don't even deserve the picture. We don't even deserve the letter. You have adopted us into your family by your grace. And Father, we want to know you. Thank you that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Thank you that he came to bring a final culmination. May we never treat him as just another character in the Bible. May we see him as the king that he is. And Father, I pray that you'd keep us from ever standing in judgment of anything in your word. We don't stand in judgment of you. You stand in judgment of us. Protect us from ever thinking that we are smarter or more merciful or more just than you are. Help us to humble ourselves and to see you as you are. And Father, may we never lose sight of the gift that you've given us in Jesus, not only to bring us forgiveness, but to show us so that when we look at Jesus, we see who the Father is. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.